if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. This is the second part of a two-part episode in which I invited my friends Ed the Protestant and Cory Lakatos out to the One Whirling Adventure secret compound for a conversation about G.K. Chesterton's famous essay, Why I Am a Catholic. Now, if you haven't listened to that first episode, just go back one installment in the podcast archive and you'll find it. And I've posted a link to Chesterton's essay on the ConsideringCatholicism.com website next to these two episodes. It only takes about 10 minutes or so to read, and it'll help you to follow along with our conversation. And if you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions, please send me an email, greg at consideringcatholicism.com. So Ed and Corey, Corey and Ed, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having us back. Well, actually, we've not left. Uh, back, we back meaning you turned the button off. <laughs> you could have kicked us out. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I turned the record button back on. We have been sitting out here on a beautiful fall day at the One Rolling Adventure secret recording compound. And uh, we've been talking about G.K. Chesterton's essay, Why I Am a Catholic. And we it began by talking about his opening contention that the biggest reason to be Catholic is that it's, well, true. And then he talked something about how it's the only thing about which could be said, and he gave some instances kind of about how the unique merits of the Catholic Church. And that was, we cut that, uh, we hit the pause button, and now we've hit it, the play button or record button again, and we're going to pick up the next part of the essay where he says, look, I could list 10,000 reasons or unique merits of Catholicism, he said, but since in this short space I can only take a section, I will consider it in its capacity of a guardian of the truth. So now in the middle section of the essay, he camps on the one thing that he wants to, I think, camp on here as the most compelling feature of Catholicism is that it functions as a guardian of the truth. And then he gives some historical examples of how the church has acted as the guardian of the truth. And, you know, I'm not going to read them all right here, but he kind of goes through history, talks about how the church has protected civilization, Western civilization, Christianity from error. So let me throw this to you guys. As you read this or this notion of the guardian of the truth, church is the guardian of the truth. What does Chesterton mean by saying that Catholicism, the Catholic church is the guardian of the truth? And and maybe, interestingly, what does he not mean? Well, I think what he doesn't mean, which is a good thing to stipulate ahead of time, is shown in one of those examples he talks about where he's, he's talking about the, the then contemporary um, 
controversy over evolution, like in the Scopes Monkey trial and that kind of thing versus biblical fundamentalists versus um, evolutionary uh, theorists. And he part of his comment on that is that um, the church hasn't, you know, um, commented on the conclusions of science because science hasn't concluded. Science is is ongoing. It tests theories. It it hones them. It it replaces them. And so when he says that the church is the guardian of the truth, he's not talking about what is the the origin of this particular species or scientific truth, that kind of thing. Which which of course is is a is a type of truth like we could say true or false things about the natural sciences but he he's talking about truth and faith and morals of fundamental truth of 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 wisdom things that are beyond and in some sense more important and, and definitely more settled more timeless than something like the latest scientific theory right i mean the church is the guardian of the truth that has been entrusted to the church mm-hmm. you know there's this old idea that it comes from St. Paul, that there is the good deposit. Mm-hmm. In other words, that God in Christ gave the apostles a sort of deposit of truth and the faith. And it's the things that, you know, we talk about God created the world. In time, he sent his son who lived and died on a cross and rose again and built the church and so on and so forth and everything goes with that. And this is a good deposit of the truth that has been entrusted to the apostles to guard and transmit and defend unto the last day. It doesn't necessarily mean that the church knows the lotto numbers for the super lotto next week or that the church has all scientific knowledge. Or Or the church can tell you what the perfect political solution or system is for the present day, but it can tell you the principles by which you would decide that. It can tell you about the dignity of human life or about any, any number of other principles that you would need. But that is this dynamic notion. It is a, and this is very different than Catholic in, in Catholicism. I think than Protestantism, which lives in this space of well, all we have is the written word, right? The canon of Scripture, sola scriptura, and all we can say is what we think that we can explicitly pull out of sola scriptura. Catholicism has a bigger notion of sola dea verbum, the only the word of God. And that that word of God consists not only of the written scriptures, but the apostolic tradition and, and teachings of it. And that that deposit of faith, that, that truth that Christ entrusted to the church to carry to the end and to transmit to the world and to apply, that's the dynamic truth upon which the Catholic church is not only built and not only entrusted with, and its mission is not only to spread it, but also in a sense to protect and defend that truth, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you and I talked about this once when we were talking about the papacy, that it, there's a sense in which the power of the Pope or the, let's say, maybe the jurisdiction or the, the mandate of the Pope is not necessarily to invent things, but to defend that good deposit. Yeah, I, re- I remember you say it was, it, was a, it was an influential thing to me that you said, because I, as a Protestant, I had this notion that the Pope was, you know, making up lottery numbers or whatever, you know, like you said, I'm tired of, you know, here I am still journeying through this. I hate to use the word journeying. It's not even a verb. Anyway, um, (laughs) traveling, (laughs) yeah, traveling, even that implies that there's something grand and noble about what I'm doing. And it's not, I don't think shuffling, right? (laughs) Shambling. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Shambling along here. Um, 
Yeah, that was that's my Protestant experience is that we pull all the all all, all kinds of other things into it. Okay, so um, political things and and things that are not Christian truths. I I I don't want to join that kind of movement. You know. Well, let's let's get let's let's get a little bit specific here. What is the truth that the Catholic Church is the guardian of, Corey? I mean, the, at the most fundamental level, it's the truth of the gospel, that, that God created us, he loves us, he became incarnate and died and rose for us, and that he has provided this church as a means for us to come into communion with him. Okay. And? And a lot of things follow from that. Okay. So let's unpack that a little bit, right? So that gospel is given within a context. And the context is the salvation history, mm-hmm. um, how God has worked through history from creation to fall to the covenants made with Abraham, Noah and Abraham and Moses and so on and so on and so forth, right? Mm-hmm. Through his covenant people of Israel, the giving of the law, on and on and on, all throughout salvation history up to the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, his uh, incarnation, death, resurrection the establishment of the church at Pentecost, the mission given to that church, the nature of that church, and the, the truth, the teachings of Christ that have been entrusted to that church with respect to, as you said, faith, morals, um, God's will. And that constitutes, and that also enfolds the written word of scripture and the uh, apostolic tradition. And so it's this large bank of truth but in addition to that, we have over time all of the wisdom of, that the church has acquired and the learning that the church has acquired along the way and the tradition that's acquired, right? So each generation contributes. We've talked before about how the church is like an acorn that grows into a mighty oak tree. And, and so in Catholicism, Corey, I think you and I had a, a conversation episode once where we talked about the year zero thing. That mm-hmm. if It's kind of a, a, a Protestant primitivism that we always just kind of want to be operating, you know, in the second chapter of the book of Acts. But that can... Well, that, and if you have truth and you're going through, through your life with it, that you're going to encounter situations in which you have to apply it. Um, and that's the situation of, of the church throughout the ages is we, we have the, tr- the truth that Jesus has entrusted to us. And then we have to live it out in, in a world that does change. And that, that is a situation that, that means that we will uh, acquire wisdom over the ages because we're, we're reacting to different situations. And maybe in a sense, the church is, you talked about the Pope having the, 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 the more time goes by, the more restricted a Pope is in what he is actually give, being given to guard. Because it's been, it's, it's being refined and winnowed mm-hmm. down and it's. He has less room to maneuver. Right. You can't contradict right. what has been. So in that sense, guarding the truth might mean also then that the Catholic Church is continuing to examine what the truth is and make sure that they are saying it right, doing it right, believing it right. Mm-hmm. So I want to, I want to come to that, but before I, I, I leave this, we leave this point. I just want to stress that, you know, we're talking about this in in terms of truth as if it's merely doctrinal truth. But of course, it's more rich than that. Ed, you and I have talked about the patrimony of the church. That's its art. It's it's civilization. 
all of the things that all of the saints, you know, we, we talk at the intro of this podcast, the, the, you know, the 20 centuries, the 24 time zones, the two hemispheres, the people from every race, language, and nation, this rich patrimony of culture, civilization, art, learning, everything that is, you know, all of the, the, the beauty and the goodness and the accomplishments of all of the Catholics, you know, G.K. Chesterton's Democracy of the Dead, all who have stood, that's part of that ongoing patrimony of the truth that the church defends. Mm-hmm. It's part of who we are. And the church needs to stand up for and do that. That's why a lot of times I say at the beginning of this podcast, you know, it's, it's the, the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity, because it is that. And why a lot of times this podcast is, is considering Catholicism, because my contention is that there's the Catholic faith, which resides and is given by and is found in the Catholic Church. And then there's Catholicism. So it's like, a, like Russian nesting dolls or something. Catholicism contains the faith, the church, the art, the history, uh, the people. All of this, it's the, it's the totality of that lived experience of Catholicism. Uh, throughout the ages. And, and that's, that's remarkable. And in some sense, the church is the guardian of that patrimony, mm-hmm. which I think is powerful. Okay. But going back to a minute ago, what Ed, you were talking about, which is sort of honing down or winnowing or whatnot, the truth and the church guarding and protecting and being limited in what it can do, because, you know, you have precedent. What was true 50 years ago or 500 years ago or 2000 years ago is still truth, right? And so the church in some sense is bound by the truth that has been revealed now, except, okay, so now we get got to get to the 800 pound elephant or whatever it is that's sitting in here in the, out in the forest with us. And that is, is that there's a lot of pressure in the church. There always has been pressure on the church to change its doctrines. I mean, there's always been pressures for heresy. Um, that's been true for 2,000 years. Mm. Heresies have arisen. They've come, they've gone. But we live in a time where there's a lot of pressures for heresy and pressures for the church to either retract or change or adapt its doctrinal teaching on a host of issues. Probably the most glaringly obvious are the moral teachings of the church in many instances where there's a lot of pressure right now in the Catholic church to change its moral teachings on life or sexuality or a number of issues like that. And so it puts pressure on the hierarchy of the church to say, well, um, you know, doesn't the church over time have a sort of progression where more and more truth is discovered and revealed. So how, talk, let's talk about that a little bit, the tension that a lot of, I think, converts come to the Catholic Church because they're looking for that, that guardian of the truth. And I know some converts to Catholicism in the last number of years are dismayed to sort of come into the Catholic Church to only to hear that there's all these pressures to sort of revert to liberal Protestantism. Corey, I know you've got thoughts on this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, th- this goes to to that passage in Chesterton um, where you get the phrase one whirling adventure from because it's a whirling adventure because the, the guy on the horse is dodging and weaving all these things and almost falling off in one direction and getting back in the saddle and almost falling off in the other direction. Like, it's a wild ride and there are lots of pressures to, to change, to conform to the spirit of the age. And, and I think we just have to realize that that's not going to go away. 
until the Lord comes back and sets all things to rights, but also to have confidence in him because he, he sent the Holy Spirit to guide the church and to, to be the guardian of the truth, of the deposit of the faith. And so, yeah, in any given age, you're going to have different challenges to it, and you're going to have people within the church who are challenging it, um, again, because we're, we're sinful human beings, um, and, and we're subject to those temptations uh, to, to veering from the truth. And that's just normal. And, and we're not going to, to get away from that, but we can have confidence that the church is not just going to turn tail and fundamentally change something. We, we grow in understanding, as, as Ed said, but a growth in understanding or an unpacking of truth doesn't contradict that same truth. Um, it, it can't fundamentally change it. We've talked about this before. That would be the 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 acorn growing into some other kind of tree or growing into some other kind of organism entirely, it would be a monstrosity. And the, ch- the church is not a monstrosity. It, it grows organically into what it is meant to be in seminal form, and it doesn't contradict itself. Okay, so let me push back on that. Yeah, go ahead. All right. That all sounds great, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are some people out here who are listening that feel like it's whistling past the graveyard. It's a, it's, a, it's a happy talk about the church will never do this. It will never change. It will never, it can't, you know, yada, yada, yada. And yet they're looking in the news and they're seeing that uh, all of the bishops in Germany and a lot of <laughs> bishops here and around the world are saying, well, hey, why don't we change the church's perennial teaching on uh, life or human sexuality or marriage or any number of different things, mm-hmm. right? And there's this tremendous pressure to change the church's teaching. And they're being told by people like us, oh, that can never happen. It's impossible. The church is the guardian of the truth. And so I'm kind of being devil's advocate here. Maybe, yeah, I don't yeah. know. But but a lot of people are starting to get dismayed and go, what, what guarantee do we have that the church is going to be the guardian of its perennial truth? I, I've seen, I think I've seen from just a little history that I've read that the Catholic church has has indeed been assaulted the in in all these things but there's always held their has always held its ground yeah. okay so sure there are guys in germany and there are people here but it's never it's never lasted terribly long and it's never you know i take great comfort in the thought that the truth that the catholic church is presenting has been uh, uh funneled through millions of people catholic people who have said this is the conclusion we came to uh, you you said chesterton's uh, um uh, what is it? The um, democracy, the democracy, of the, dead. the dead, right? Okay. Uh, I, I have, as as opposed to uh, my life as a Protestant, where everybody says, "Well, I think what the Bible means is this." And and I was just at sitting at dinner last weekend, and there was a young woman, a twenty-something, uh, a wonderful young woman, and she was saying. Well, we were talking about what this meant, what that. She said, "Well, I just think it's important that we love Jesus." I think that's all that matters. And I thought, uh, this is, as, as Winston Churchill said, this is something up with which I will no longer put. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm done getting any of that, any, anything that I believe like that from that kind of a source as, 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 as um, sincere as she was, you know, and, and all the other, and all the other people. Yeah. So, Yesterday, I guess depends on when this. Well, it was yesterday when we're recording this. I don't know when this episode will be aired relative to that, but sometime in the next couple of weeks. But I uh, interviewed uh, Father Gordon Regal, uh, who is the uh, pastor, 
uh, over at and in a church in East Lansing uh, next to Michigan State University, and he's the one that uh, had the vision for and is leading the 54-day novena on um, fight like heaven, right? And he and I were having a conversation offline uh, after the recording about university students and what he's seeing with university students here in 2022. And he said so many of them are coming into the church and they're hungry and desperate in a sense for certainty Mm -hmm. because this generation was raised on sort of a sea of nihilism. Uh, what, you know, Benedict the 16th, when he was Ratzinger called or called the, the dictatorship of relativism, yeah. right? It's, and it's exactly what Chesterton is talking about in this essay, the degrading, uh, spectacle of being a, a child of your, uh, beholden to the fashions of your, of, of the age, right? Being, being tossed about by the, the, the current thing. And he said, they're looking for something that is rooted in historical tradition. They want to know, somebody tell me what the, I want to know what the truth is. Not blindly, like I just want to be, but they, they, they want to find that thing. They want to find that, that continuity, that truth, that historic reality. They're looking for exactly what Chesterton is talking about in this essay. And yet, you know, we do have this, you know, terrible sense. And we've been talking about here is, well, that's the church's proper function is to guard that deposit and be the guardian of it and provide that continuity. But boy, it can get scary sometimes. You know, we're sitting out here in the forest and when the wind blows out here, I can tell you these trees bend a lot. And, uh, you know, you can start to think that some are going to fall down. And the crazy thing is you can say, well, the trees bend, but they don't fall. But, but some do. Some do, because I'll come out here in the forest and every now and then you'll see a tree came down or a giant limb, a huge limb broke off one and came to the ground. And I think when we look at the church today, you know, again, I, you know, current events, but we look at what's going on in Germany with the, the German Catholic Church and, you know, are we going to lose uh, the German Catholic Church? Are we going to lose... Are, yeah, are we going to lose parts of the American church? Is there going to be schism? Are we living in times? The church has been through some of this before. You know, there was a time when there were three popes, for goodness sake, you know, and we had popes and anti-popes and conflicts like this. But it is scary. And, and there's no guarantees that we aren't going to lose some people or lose some portions of the church. And some could argue that we lost a quarter to half of the church in the 1500s to the Protestant Reformation. Yeah, and and I certainly am not diminishing the scandal of those of those controversies of people trying to to propose that we should change the teachings of the church. I think it's it's terribly discouraging to people, um, and it, and it can be a terrible deterrent to people converting to the church. Um, it, it can look like they were sold a false bill of goods. Um, I think it it fundamentally comes down to do you believe that there is a de- a defender of the truth in the world that God has established this, that when he said to Peter, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If, if you believe that there's a defender of the truth in the world, then, then who do you think it is? Um, if it's not the Catholic church, how is your Protestant denomination holding up in that regard? Um, I, I would posit probably not very well. Um, do you, do you think it's just sort of Christians in general, this, this idea of like the, the invisible church rather than the visible church? I think that one falls down pretty easily as well because you can't define it. So if it's not the Catholic church and and you don't have faith in, in Christ for doing it that way, then, then I'm not sure how you 
avoid simply despairing of the thing entirely. Well, well in a sense, doesn't this go back to the very first sentence of Chesterton's essay that at the end of the day, um, I've come to believe that Catholicism is true. And one of the founding tenets of Catholicism is that there is a church built on Peter mm-hmm. and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. It may get beaten. It may sway in the wind. Some big branches may fall off from time to time, but it will withstand till Christ comes back. And if you believe Catholicism is true, then you have to believe that that part of Catholicism is true, right? Mm-hmm. And here's this other thing, going back to the existential, you know, so we talked also uh, in the last episode about how Chesterton said, hey, you know, my conversion story is like, you know, who cares about me? I'd rather talk about the church. But when we talk about conversion, you know, there's also, you, you come down to that relativistic thing. And you know what I was thinking about is that, that, that line when uh, the people leave Jesus in John 6, right? Mm-hmm. And Jesus then turns to the apostles and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, where would we go? You have the words of life. And so when I get discouraged, because I think we all can get discouraged from time, you know, I, I get up in the morning and I pour myself my cup of coffee and I, <laughs> I, I, I flip on my iPad and then I go through the list of websites that I always check in the morning, including some Catholic websites. And, you know, I will find some discouraging story about something going on in the church, some scandal or some controversy or something. And, you know, at six o'clock in the morning, that can kind of punch you in the gut a little bit. And, and I think, oh my gosh, did I buy a ticket on the Titanic when I joined the Catholic church? But then I go, well, what's my alternative? Right. I mean, what, to, where would I, where, where would I go? What to, would I do? Would I go back to, would I go back, would Ed and I go back to the big, you know, church with the guitar bands and the big diamond vision? I mean, what, what, right. what, what, what's my option here? Well, yeah, to kind of push that, that metaphor of the defender of the faith a little bit more, like if the church is sort of a, a fortress defending the church, we can fight on the walls or we can go outside the fortress and try and, you know, you'll get by as best we can out there. But I'm, I'm not sure that that's really going to be a, a, a safer or, uh, you know, a more fulfilling option. Well, the, to that, I mean, the metaphor is all wrong anyway. When it says the gates of hell shall not stand against you, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, people mean that, right, right. you know, it's not that the, the, the gates of the church will withstand the assaults of hell. It's that it's that the gates of hell will not withstand the church because the church is supposed to be on the move. On the offensive. On the offensive, challenging the very gates of hell. And so if the church gets stuck sitting in a spot allowing, you know, the worst thing you can do is just to be on defense. I mean, anybody's ever, you know, tried to coach a, a you know, a, a junior soccer, your kids, you know, your kids recreation, soccer, second grade, third grade recreation soccer team, you know, realizes that kids just can't sit there and let, you know, the other team kicked the ball at them, you know, at some point, if the goalie is just sitting there letting them take endless shots on the goal, you know, at some point you have to go on offense. You have to get the kids to take the ball down the field. You have to go at the other team. And, and the thing is, is that in, in some ways, if you conceive of the Catholic church as camping on a spot uh, and just get letting itself get, you know, get, uh, you know, take people taking shots on goal on the church. Uh, it can get discouraging. But the church, we need to be out there. The Catholic church is the guardian of the truth because it's taking the truth to the ends of the world, right? Yeah. yeah. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> yeah, amen. So 
Okay, let's come back to this essay for a second, because one of the things about Chesterton is he's probably one of the most quotable writers in the English language. And part of that is, as we said, I think at the beginning of the last episode, Chesterton, if he were around today, he'd be a podcaster, a talk radio host, or a blogger or something, because he just was every day just churning out stuff. And he has this amazing ability to turn a phrase. And so, you know, you can just go through like these collections of Chesterton quotes. And a lot of people have never read any of Chesterton's actual books or essays. They've just read all of the one-liners. Right. But he drops some amazing one-liners in the next part of this essay, right? He says, those who complain that Catholicism cannot say anything new seldom think it necessary to say anything new about Catholicism. And in other words, it's the same tired attacks, the same right. tired arguments against Catholicism over and over and over again. Um, Nine out of 10 of what we call new ideas are simply old mistakes. The Catholic Church has for one of her chief duties that of preventing people from making those old mistakes, from making them over and over again forever, as people always do if they are left to themselves. I can bear witness to that. (laughs) (laughs) And then I love this metaphor. He says, the Catholic Church carries a sort of map of the mind, which looks like the map of a maze, but which is in fact a guide to the maze. It has been compiled from knowledge, which even considered as human knowledge is quite without any human parallel. I mean, you have one continuous institution that for 2000 years across the world has been gathering insights into human life, morals, faith, uh, and society. Yeah, and I, th- I think it takes a certain amount of humility to, to realize that we need something like that um, because I think it's, it's the default for people in general to be like, nope, I can figure this out on my own. Um, I've got everything that I need. I don't need somebody to tell me what to do or not to do, especially. Um, but if we have a little humility, we realize, no, I'm, I'm very open to making the same old mistakes that people have made for thousands of years. And I, I could really could use somebody to, you know, give me some pointers. Well, and that's where he says in the next sentence, he says, the result is a map in which all the blind alleys and bad roads are clearly marked. All the ways that have been shown to be worthless by all the best of evidence, the evidence of those who have gone down them. On this map, the mo- errors of the mind uh, on this map of the mind, the errors are marked as ex- on this map of the mind, the errors are marked as exceptions. The greater part of it consists of playgrounds and happy hunting fields where the mind may have as much liberty as it likes, not to mention any number of intellectual battlefields in which the battle is indefinitely open and undecided. As he gets to the end of this section of the essay, he has this sentence, which I think is just gold. He says, the church is not merely armed against the heresies of the past or even of the present, but equally against those of the future that may be the exact opposite of those of the present. Mm. You know, so out of the vast experience that the church has, 2,000 years, you know, uh, all the people, civilizations, um, uh, centuries, everything that's been through all around the world, church drawing on that has this 
treasury of knowledge and experience. And it is prepared to not only deal though, because of that, you know, it's like if you've been prepared by the past and you've been prepared for that, you're sort of prepared for what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And he said, I love that line about prepared against the heresies of the future, which may be the exact opposite of those of the present. And that strikes me incredibly relevant right now because so many things that are the current thing at the moment were unthinkable 10 years ago. I mean, look Mm -hmm. at things like gender ideology. It's, and you and I are old guys, but it's, it's unthinkable that even 20 years ago, anybody would be saying this stuff. It's unthinkable almost that 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. even Corey, a young whippersnapper like Corey has got to realize that even 10 years ago, the things that you're hearing today would have sounded insane. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so even in your relatively short brief lifespan, (laughs) you have to, you know, be just um, flummoxed by uh, what are they going to invent next week? And so that's where he says the heresies of the future, the heresies of next week, next month, next year might be the exact opposite of the day. And that's where Father Gordon was saying to me yesterday when we were talking about university students that they're sort of adrift on the sea of nihilism, just being blown around where there's nothing that's true. See, that's, this feels like the church, knowing having the map through all the blind alleys and the bad roads and all those things, that feels like real freedom to me. That feels like... Um, I could relax if I knew what the boundaries were. We all know that kids love boundaries. We all have kids. And, and uh, Chesterton said somewhere about, he gave the example of a, of, a, of a playground for kids that's up on a high bluff or something. And there's, and, there's, and there's a, if you don't build a fence, you just tell them not to go over toward the edge. They'll all huddle in the exact geographic center of it because, that, you know, but if you build a fence around it, around the, and say to them, you just don't climb on the fence, they can run and play and do whatever they want and, and chase each other all the way up and they're free to do that. That's how it feels. That's how this feels to me rather than constantly worrying that I, I am not, you know, that this might be okay this year or it might not be okay next year. Right. Well, if you go down a bad alley and fall into a pit, you're not going to have an awful lot of freedom of movement. Right. Well, as we, as we wrap this, this episode up, let, let's, let's land on this because we were just talking a moment ago about, you know, the current thing that is today, but wasn't five or 10 years ago. So let's take something like gender ideology. What this is, is a redefinition of the human person. Besides strip everything else away, what it comes down to is the question is, what is a human being? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And the church has 2000 years of reflection on what a human being is and what it isn't. And, you know, for the, if you study your church history, you realize that there have been all kinds of counter proposals, all kinds of heresies that have arisen over the centuries about the nature of mankind, the nature of humanity, what, what is a human being and what isn't a human being. And the church has lived through those, it responded to those. And now we have this new sort of attempted redefinition of the, of the human person and the church has, and that's what strikes me. And I guess maybe it's just happening so fast. We're not seeing the church react quickly enough because I think, you know, we know that the church has the intellectual resources and the doctrinal resources to respond to this madness. Uh, we can pick up our Thomas Aquinas or our Augustine or our this or our that and find good responses to all of this. Um, we have all of that in the library, but we have to respond and speak that truth. And I think my, my sense is right now, this, some of this stuff has been whipped up so quickly 
that a lot of church leaders are kind of caught on their back foot and are not prepared to respond. And it may take a generation for us to formulate a proper response, Corey, maybe your generation. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, there's a degree to which that's true and also not because yes, um, plenty, plenty of people in the church and priests and bishops um, have been too slow, but also we have the resources right at our fingertips. And I've seen lots of people using it um, in the last several generations. And today, I mean, all you have to do is, is look back to St. John Paul II and his theology of the body, which came before, you know, the, the more radical innovations of the last decade, but speaks directly to that subject and has been very widely disseminated in Catholic circles and is being, being used to articulate the Catholic understanding of what a human being is and what sexuality is and isn't. Um, and I, I think you see a lot of strength and vigor in parts of the church that are, that are proclaiming and living the church's teaching on that. Yes, you also have um, segments that are not doing that or are just being slow or are underestimating the seriousness of the issue. It's like one of these, um, you know, ancient sea battles with the Romans or whatever, and the the enemy's trying to board the ship or something or, you know, hurl Greek fire under the ship. And at some point, you know, we're under assault and, you know, we do have the resources to respond and some are, but it, it can feel sort of perilous when every time you turn around, every time I get up in the morning, pour my coffee and flip my iPad to Catholic news sites and go, hey, here's the, the latest lawsuit, the latest assault, the latest mm-hmm. you know, thing that's going on. So, yeah, I mean, we live in the hurly-burly of history. Well, yeah, I mean, you just have to be realistic. I mean, an enemy doesn't give you a, a pass or, you know, lay off when you're perceived to be weak or, I mean, that's not how war works. I mean, I church think, is at war. I think some people in the trenches of some of these fights um, in their local school boards and their workplaces and all these things, some of them, you know, are, are probably looking for more help from church leaders to step up and give them encouragement and defense. And I think that it just takes time to formulate a response. You know, when you have something happen, it, it, it takes at best weeks or months or years to organize intelligent responses. But I agree with you. I think those responses are being organized. Never thought we'd have to be, never thought, never even dawned on us that we'd have to be defending whether or not men can have babies. This is never, <laughs> never right. even, and never well, even dawned on well, you. I mean, Chesterton, I don't know that he said anything about that specifically, but he said a lot of times that we're going to get down to the, to the point where we just have to defend basic reality observable to our senses, like that the sky is blue and two plus two is four right. and things like that, which I think is where we are in human sexuality. Yep. Right. Right. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts and please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.